0: Welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding. I'm John Green and I'm your host today. And here we are, June the 13th, 2021. And we're going to be looking at um, 1 Samuel 15, 34 through 16, 13, 2 Corinthians 5, 6 to 17, and Mark 4, 26 to 34. Uh, before we get started, I want to say that we've, we've had a good week. Everything's going well at our house. Um, Will is getting better every single day. And. Uh, get his energy back and all that. We've been able to get out a couple of days this week and walk a couple of miles together, and uh, to to start doing some workouts at home. The bands that I bought a year ago have really come in handy because he's able to use those things and uh, and work out and begin to redevelop some strength that he lost in the two and a half months that he was kind of out of commission from able to do anything physically, even cognitively, actually. And so it's been good. It's been you know it's been a nice week here. As far as the weather's concerned and all that, I've been able to get back into the gym and begin to do some things enough to get myself sore on a regular basis. So that's all good. We're uh, going out tonight and doing something kind of interesting. I'll tell about maybe a little bit next week. I'll tell about that. Um, but anyway, there's is a lot. It, we've been busy and a lot's going on, and I'm, I'm excited about the future. I'm excited about where we are right now. and. And I believe that, um, that we're going to see the Lord do some things here in the next little bit. To, today, what I want to talk about more than anything else is, is epistemology, <laughs> which means how do we know something? You know, what, what's the basis for knowing something and saying that you know it? Um, it? It's Knowing is an important factor in all of these lessons here today. Um, we're going to see Samuel going out to anoint one of the sons of Jesse in Bethlehem, Um, This is David's anointing as king over Israel, and and we're going to see what it means to know in that passage. We're also going to see the same basic thing in the reading from 1 Corinthians. We're going to see, or 2 Corinthians, sorry, Paul's going to talk about knowing uh, and how do we know anything. And then uh, Jesus talks about, uh, in parables, speaks about um, the kingdom of God, and it's in such a way that, that he speaks, it says, in many such parables as they were able to hear it. Um, so things remain a little bit hidden and and not known at the time that he, he speaks these parables. And, it, and it's up to him then to, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to teach us and to lead us into all truth is what he says. And so w- when we know something to be true, then how do we know it? And, and how does Christian faith differ from the kind of knowledge that we claim in other um, parts of our lives, or does it differ? And I think what we've seen over the last little bit is is that in, in many ways that it that it's that faith is not different from um, other things we quote know in the world today. And it's becoming clearer every single day that, that the biggest barrier to knowledge, the biggest barrier to belief and understanding is actually fear. And, it, and it's um, our preconceived notions about things, the things we bring to the table, our presuppositions that we bring to the table. And I think we're, we're becoming more and more divided on these issues because we're becoming less and less um, Christian as a nation and, and as a world. And I think that's that's a problem. There's a Christian epistemology that changes everything. There's a Christian way of knowing anything, and have, we have access to knowledge and information that the rest of the world doesn't have. And so what what we see is these sort of mass hysterias that have been playing out for the for the last, I don't even know how many years, it's honestly difficult to even tell, where people believe a certain thing because they're committed to some other belief already, and so they're not prepared to hear the truth if it comes from a somebody who's different from them or who is in another party in the United States um, and so we're we're unwilling to assimilate things that conflict with what we already believe and and it's interesting that that's always been the charge against the church and now it's the charge that we could make against the world and I don't care which side you're on you can make that argument because none of us are very good at, at pulling together a variety of sources and, and coming to the truth of that. We tend to get in our own little bubble and we forget that um, those other people even exist or that they have any right to make a claim to any sort of truth. And so here's what I'm, the, the goal for me today is, is pretty simple, actually. It's to say that if we want to know anything, if we want to know the truth about things, then we have to do what Jesus did over and over again, and that's pray, and that's spend time alone with the Father, asking Him to show us, because frequently what we believe is wrong, because we've already set up certain kinds of things. One of the reasons I read um, rabbinic literature and listen to rabbinic teaching is because I believe God's continually revealing Himself to them, just like he reveals himself to Christians, as long as you're seeking after truth, as long as you're seeking after God's truth, then God will reveal that truth to you. And so I believe that they see things in the Old Testament scriptures that, that we're not seeing because they're so dogmatically focused on those as the revealed truth of God in a way that the New Testament is definitely not. But they can't get to the ultimate understanding. And sometimes I'll hear teaching and think, Wow, do you not see Jesus in what you just said? And if you've ruled him out from the beginning, it makes it much more difficult to come to faith, to come to see the truth that seems so obvious to us it becomes a very difficult thing for them to see. But it's by the power of the Holy Spirit that we are able to see these things. But when you rule out something in the beginning, it's much more difficult. To see that that's possibly true, and so that's that's what I want to talk about today. Is, is how do we as Christians begin to understand the world, and how do we become begin to increase our own faith? And it and faith is the answer, which is an odd thing, but it's also prayer. It's 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 being willing to lay down my presuppositions in order to hear something different, something that conflicts with my presuppositions. We don't often check our presuppositions. They're just our worldview, our Lebensraum, that we just live with. And so we, we rarely allowed those kinds of presuppositions to be challenged. And, and that's what Paul's getting at when he says, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so your, your mind is an important part of what goes on here. But the mind then has to press that truth down into the heart and accept it. And we're going to talk a little bit about that today as well. So let's start in and start looking at 1 Samuel, um, that passage from 1 Samuel 15, verse 34 through 1 Samuel 16:8. And what's happened here, just to lay the predicate for this, is, is what's happened is several chapters before this, Samuel has anointed Saul. As king over Israel in remember last week we were looking at Saul or Samuel telling the people what kind of king they would have one who would take advantage of them and use them as nothing more than factors of production and he, he would confiscate their children and all their stuff and, and would treat them more or less as slaves rather than or servants maybe better um, rather than in the way that God treated them you know that he didn't. He's the kind of king we ultimately really do want, but we prefer something we can see. And so Samuel anointed him based on the, the lots that were chosen. That that um, that Saul becomes the first king of Israel, and then he has to be rejected because he just won't listen to the Lord. First time he's told to wait for seven days, and he won't wait for seven days because he gets panicky and is afraid that. Samuel's not going to come back, and then the second time he's told to go kill all the Amalekites and destroy all the um, uh, livestock of the Amalekites as well, and he doesn't. He spares the king, Agag, and then he keeps the best of the flocks and the herds. And so Samuel calls him out on that, and finally he repents and said, "You know, I was afraid of the people, so I did these things. I have no idea whether that's true or not, but he does say, I repent of doing this but he's ultimately rejected because he he feared the people and obeyed their voice remember i've said this multiple times whenever you look read the old testament particularly whenever you see the phrase obey the voice your ears should perk right up because that's exactly what god said um to eve because you obeyed that voice or no is to adam sorry because you obey the voice of your wife and so the the problem is is that that if if god has spoken then you obey His voice. You don't fear the people and obey their voice. You don't. It's not that you don't question God, because He's perfectly open to questioning. But but disobedience is a totally different matter. What what could Eve and Adam have done? Well, they could have said, "Well, let's wait until the Lord comes," because He, you know, what happens next is He comes walking in the garden. They could have said, "Why don't we wait until He comes and we'll get this matter straight with Him before we do that." And that's the problem is is they rush in to what sounds like a plausible argument. And then Eve eats of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then because she doesn't die, which is what God said would happen, then, then she gives it to her husband, Adam, and he eats as well. And, and so they're, they're forming opinions based on plausible arguments, not, not based on the word of God. And so it's important that we, we know the Word of God and that we live the Word of God and, and that our faith isn't just blind faith because that we, have, we have evidence for it to start with, but the other side of it is it's not faith in a sense that, well, I believe this intellectually. No, it, it, faith should mean, the creed should mean that, that I, I believe this to the extent that I'm setting my life on this truth. And therefore, I'm not going to fear man. I'm not going to fear what can happen to me in this world because ultimately my obedience is to the greatest king who could ever be imagined. And so here we are in 1 Samuel. Samuel goes to Ramah, where he is from, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And so what's happened is they've parted from one another after he has told Saul that he's been rejected. And he didn't see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul. It broke his heart. He was invested in Saul as king because he's the one who anointed him, and so he, he felt like he had some responsibility there. And then the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. He was there basically to do one job, and that's to deliver them from the Philistines, which is exactly what God said that he would do. Um, and the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I've rejected him from being king over Israel? In other words, get over it get moving on. And it's a principle that David applies later in his life when he uh, sins with Bathsheba and that produces a child and that child doesn't live. And, And David grieves and begs the Lord not to take this child's life, to spare this child. But then as soon as the child dies, David is ready to go. He says, nope, we're moving on now. There's nothing I can do for that child anymore. When he was alive, I did my best, but not now. I'm moving on. And, and, and it's the same basic thing that the two men, quote unquote, say to the disciples as they stand in, in Acts 1, looking, gazing into the clouds from, when, from which in whence Jesus rose and says that he'll come again that way. But why do you stand here looking at this? It's time to move on. And so that's exactly what God's saying to Samuel is, it's time to move on. I rejected him. Now fill your horn with oil and go. I'll send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And so he, God has chosen the king. Samuel, they cho, they drew lots for the first king. The first lot was to decide which tribe he would come from, and then which clan he would come from, and then who within that clan. And then it was Saul, and he was hiding. Because he didn't want to be king. Saul had a problem with fear, even though he was the biggest guy around. Because what we're told is he stood head and shoulders above everybody else. And, And the Lord came upon him and rushed upon him, it says. And then he began to prophesy. And yet he couldn't hold that thread together. Fear kept Saul from becoming the man of God that he was intended to be his fear constantly caused him to do things against the will of God and that's easy in our own lives we can take charge of things we can lay our hands on things because we don't see God answering it we're not good at waiting we're not good at trusting and so we'll lay hands on a thing or we'll rush in with the partial bit of knowledge and then we'll we'll make huge mistakes that get us into trouble and we need to drop back sit wait and pray And Samuel said, how can I go to Bethlehem? If Saul hears of it, that I'm going to anoint another king, he'll kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice. And I'll show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. God says, just do what I told you to do, which is fill your horn with oil and go. And be prepared to do what I tell you to do. He says, I'll show you what you shall do and then anoint the one that I declare to you. So he's got to wait on God to say yes. And so he goes and he comes to Bethlehem and the elders of the city are afraid. They're trembling and said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And when they came, he looks at the first one, Eliab, and he says, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. He's a good looking, big, strong guy. This has got to be the one. And God said, nope, don't look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. We're going to see a little bit later that the brothers of David are part of Saul's army and they're unwilling to go against Goliath. And everybody stands in fear and trembles and nobody will go out to meet the challenge that Goliath throws down. And then finally, David comes bringing food for his brothers and says, what's the deal? Why does this guy mock our God and y'all not do anything about it? And so David then goes out without any armor or anything, and we know what happens in the end of that. He defeats Goliath. But but Abinadab, or Eliab, sorry, it looks like the guy. He looks like the guy you'd want to be king. He makes exactly the right appearance as king. And we judge so much on appearance in everything that we do we we're willing to lift up these kinds of people and those kinds of people because we think that that we that oh yeah that guy he'll draw a crowd he'll do whatever you know and so they they we lift these people up and we lose our sense of did god say and so samuel is told no lord sees as not as man sees man looks on the outward appearance but the lord looks at the heart and then we're going to find out later that david was a heart um, a man after god's own heart which is the important thing. And so then Abinadab comes. That's the second son. Nope, not him. How about Shema? Nope, not that one. And then seven of them passed before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord hadn't chosen these. I mean, he's a little bit baffled. You know, you got all these kids. You brought all these seven boys before me, and and, and I know God told me to be here. I know exactly where he told me to go and whose son this was to be and yet here we stand you know and i've looked at all seven of them and they all look good jesse you got a good-looking family but god said no to all of them i don't really know what we're supposed to do with this and he says so he says so are all your sons here he said well no there's one still not here the youngest one but he's out keeping sheep i mean i you know, i don't even see anything great about him He's out there keeping the sheep. And Samuel said, well, go and get him, for we won't sit down till he comes here. And he went and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and he was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. All right. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went back home to Ramah. He'd done what he was sent to do. The Lord finally showed it to him. I mean, it's just by process of elimination, if God had given the promise, then he was going to have to be this last one. So he, he anoints him and then goes back home to Ramah. I mean, it's just the most bizarre anointing of a king you'll ever see in your life. I mean, there's no acclamation, at least with Saul, when he anointed him, everybody there shouting, long live the king among all the tribes, not just Benjamin. And certainly not just the clan that Saul was in within the tribe of Benjamin. Here, it's just he, he anoints him among his brothers, is all we're told. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed on David from that day forward. And then Saul, Samuel got up and left. And Jesse sent David back to the field. And we know that because that's where he comes from when he takes the food to his brothers in the episode with Goliath. So Samuel would have misjudged everything and chosen the wrong guy had he continued down that road. And so then Jesus talks about appearances as well. He talks about appearances being fooling us, and he says the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. So he, there's, it's, it's an act of faith. Right? It's an act of faith to put that seed in the ground, even though I don't understand the process behind it all. And that can describe me as well, actually. Unless I understand the process behind it all, will I refuse to put seed in the ground? No, I just know that it works. <laughs> I've observed that this happens. And, and it's so many things in life that we take for granted, but it's because somebody else had the faith enough to start down that road. The first person that ate an egg that came out of a chicken or drank milk from a cow. I mean, huh. Um, I'm not sure that I would have thought of either one of those things as being good. But but I, I drink milk and I eat eggs, right? Um, so there's all this this stuff in our lives that, that we just take on faith. And so this, this one goes out and he sows the seed and, and he just gets up and, and does what he's supposed to do you know in tilling the soil and preparing it and keeping it clean and all that kind of stuff and, and then it all comes but but when the grain is ripe it once he puts in the sickle because the harvest is coming he knows when it's when the cycle is done he knows what to do with that it worked and so that, that the fact that it works <laughs> is the reason for agricultural festivals right because the, it makes no sense necessarily that this should be what happens but it does and therefore i'm thankful i'm thankful that the the lord makes the process work and that all the things that were necessary for that thing to grow comes into being and so then he says after that with what can we compare the kingdom of god or what parable shall we use for it it's like a grain of mustard seed which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it's sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. And it's a mystery. We don't like mystery. <laughs> we like it to be easy. Well, why should a mustard seed be a tiny little thing? Why would that be the case? Well, it's because God made it that way. And maybe it's not the smallest seed on the, on the face of the earth. And Did that mean that Jesus was called out in a lie? There was something he didn't know? No, he's talking to people who, who see this. <clears throat> and so he's he's explaining the principle. And the principle is just have faith that, that this thing that you do will ultimately become something way more important than anything you could ever imagine today. That the the seed of greatness is in that thing. Even though it looks tiny. And it takes some faith to put that thing in the ground and and believe that ultimately what will happen is it'll become this great tree. And so with many other parables such, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. And so the, the, the secret to the kingdom of God has to do with faith, the faith to do what God tells you to do, to put that seed in the ground and till the soil and all those things necessary to make it grow, and I'll provide the growth. I'll provide everything that's necessary. I'll provide the the rain in its proper amounts and all that kind of stuff, and and everything will grow. And so life was an act of faith. All of life is intended to be an act of faith. And and we believe that faith is something different, and this is one of the things that Christians need to get better about. We need to understand and explain to people that, that, that what I have is not blind faith the resurrection was attested by many witnesses. I, I, I believe in their testimony, but I also believe in the witness of the Holy Spirit to tell me that their testimony is true. And so that's the important thing, is, is that that our faith isn't blind at all. There's, there's, a, there's adequate attestation to the resurrection of Jesus. And, and then we know that, that the apostles saw him ascend into the clouds, and, and so we know that that John in the uh, Revelation tells us what happens at the end of that, that he appears before the throne looking like a lamb who was slain and takes the scrolls of judgment that reveal the future from the hand of the one seated on the throne. Now, I, I, he saw that in the Spirit, and I know that he saw that in the Spirit, but I believe it. I believe that it's true because it, it fits with other revelations to other prophets like Daniel like Ezekiel, like Zechariah. So we've seen those things. And so when we know a thing, then then we don't just have faith, which is a sense of, well, there's no evidence for this, and yet I believe it anyway. No, that's not what Christian faith is all about. But sometimes you have to have the faith that God said something and then act on that faith like Samuel had to do there. And so sometimes it's only in the act of acting in faith that we can come into greater truth it makes possible greater revelation if we walk in the in what's been revealed to us already and it, it comes back to the what i call the radio show faith-seeking understanding it's based on a quote from saint anselm who um was who around you know, about 600 and so um what it means is is that, that my faith I, I didn't come to faith without some sort of evidence, although it may have been the witness of the Holy Spirit, but then that led me into deeper truth. It led me into all truth because what it did was it impelled me or compelled me to learn. I I wanted to understand more and I still want to understand more and so I listen to as much as I can and I read as much as I can and I pray as much as, well, maybe not. But all those things, what I'm saying to you is, is it's the desire to know more. Because what I believe is so desirable that I want more and more of that. I want to understand more and more. William James, who was a philosopher late in the in the 19th century, um, gave a lecture called "Will to Believe" in 1896. And what he said was, "I brought with me tonight an essay in justification of faith, not justification by faith, an essay essay in justification of faith, a defense of our right to adopt." A believing attitude in religious matters, in spite of the fact that our merely logical intellect may not have been coerced. The will to believe, accordingly, is the title of my paper. Later, he said that he wished that he had called it the right to believe, because what he was saying was is that, that you do have a right to believe. There, there's a philosophical right to believe, in spite of, of the fact that it's believing and not knowing his central argument is, hinges on the idea that access to evidence for either for whether or not certain beliefs are true depends crucially upon first adopting those beliefs without evidence. And so I, when I came to faith, you know, multiple times I came to faith, I never lost faith, but but faith properly is is living life in accordance with what you believe. That's ultimately what faith means. Like I said, it's not an intellectual assent to something. And, and and when I when I came to faith when I when I was 18 years old, say, I mean, I knew all this stuff before that, but then I came to faith at 18, and then I, and then I acted like I didn't believe these things for a long time, and then came back to faith. And I wasn't thinking about the intellectual justification for faith. That's not what won me over. It wasn't an argument from. Um, Um, apologetics that won me over ultimately it was it was christ himself and it was the witness of the holy spirit to me that did that but but in walking into a life of faith and seeking more understanding then the the act of believing allowed me to understand and to know other things because i was living a life that was based on that and so he He takes believing a proposition, James does, to consist in acting as if it were true. So if James considers testing a proposition as acting as if it were true, if it leads to successful action, then he would be committed to seeing an act of hypothesis adoption as necessarily an act of belief adoption as well. And so we're going to pursue something. And it's not pragmatism. It's not just, oh, well, it works. No, it doesn't have anything to do with that. I won't know that it works until I begin to walk in the faith. And that's what Paul is saying here in this Uh, letter to the second Corinthians he said we're always of good courage in spite of the fact that he's beaten and all this other stuff we know that while we're at home in the body we're away from the Lord for we walk by faith and not by sight I I just have to keep plowing forward believing that I'm doing what God told me to do I'm not gonna sit and wait all the time for some proofs to come to know that I'm doing the right thing and to know where I'm going and sometimes it takes a long time of perseverance in one direction to see any fruit from that and so that's what Paul said yes we're of good courage and we'd rather be away from the body and at home of the Lord but we're here so whether we're at home or away we make it our aim to please him for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what's due for what he has done in the body whether good or evil So Paul knows these things and believes these things, and he set his life on these things, and he set his life in such a way that what he hopes is at the end of all this is that he'll get a well-done, good, and faithful servant, and he won't have to cringe in embarrassment as he comes before the Lord and says, well, you know, I believed all these things, but I really, you know, I made a hash of it, and I really never stepped out in faith, I never pursued anything i lived a very safe life i didn't go and do the things you'd call me to do and and in spite of the fact that he suffered all this persecution he said i'd do it all over again and i'll do it over today i'm not going to let that deter me from doing what god gave me to do and he says therefore knowing the fear of the lord is standing before the judgment seat we persuade others but what we are is known to god and i hope it's known to your conscience as well i hope god's telling you what we really are that we're not imposters. He says, we're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance. Remember that? Outward appearance from Samuel looking at these sons of Jesse and about outward appearance and not about what's in the heart. It looks like it's a hidden thing, but and because they're eloquent and they make a great presentation, that must mean the Lord's blessing them more and they're better for God because they make the outward appearance. And Paul says, but that's not what the important thing is. The important thing is the heart. He said, for if we're beside ourselves, if we, if we look like we're out of our minds, it's for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died in the present sense. We have died and arisen again in Christ today. You have already passed through death if you're in Christ Jesus. And your life today is because of him and it's because of his Holy Spirit animating you to life. He said, "You've already died. Consider that to be true, and you passed into life. And He died for all that <clears throat> He died for all that those who live may no longer live for themselves, but for Him who, for their sake, died and was raised. And here's the important part that I want you to latch onto: for even now, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. I, we're not just going to look at the outward appearance. I want to know who you are. And John Wesley." Use that principle in, in counting conversions in the work that the Methodists were doing. And, and what he would do is say, okay, that person made a profession of faith. That ticks one box. Now we're going to watch you. And we're going to watch your life over a period of time. And, and then if we see amendment of life, if we see change, if we see a new creation, then we're going to count you as converted, but not until. We regard no one according to the flesh. I'm not going to base my decision about you on what you look like or what, you, what you've said today. I'm going to wait for the revelation of the of fullness of the Holy Spirit in your life. And he says, even though we once regarded Christ according to flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And Paul, what he's saying here, and he's making this confession. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer Is hey, I made the biggest mistake that was, that's even possible in the world. I looked at Jesus and I looked at his followers and I considered that to be a lie. Alive from the pit of hell. That's exactly what he believed. Because he persecuted the church because he believed that it was alive from the pit of hell designed to take people away from true faith. And then he had the encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus and everything changed. And he says, my eyes deceived me. And why? It was because of what he already believed. He already believed that Jesus was not the Messiah. He didn't do the things that... that when he read the scriptures, Saul slash Paul saw a certain kind of Messiah and he missed Jesus being the Messiah. He says, so I don't do that anymore. That's a mistake I'm not going to make again and again and again because I made it once and it nearly cost me my life. It nearly cost me eternal life and I'm not going to do that again. And so what are we going to do and how are we going to live and what does this mean for us? It means that we've got to not judge by outward appearances. We've got to be willing to To allow ourselves to be challenged. We've got to examine our own presuppositions. What do we believe? Then we've got to be able to walk in that faith. Because that walking it out. Living into it. Betting everything on the truth. Of the resurrection. The ascension. The coming again. And the fact that you've already received eternal life. Means you shouldn't have fear of anything. Except God. And it should be the love of Christ which compels you to proclaim him. And it's not from an apologetic sense that we need to do that because apologetics really is not for evangelism so much as it is for us, for those who already believe. Because they're further proofs of what we believe. But the, the thing is, what we've got to do is we've got to bet it all on the reality and the truth of the creeds. And everybody will say, and Flannery, not Flannery O'Connor, but uh, Dorothy Sayers talked about this, that, that people say, do away with the dogma. What we need is more drama, and her statement was that dogma is only a gateway for contemplation. It is an instrument of freedom and not of restriction. She ends up by saying it's the dogma that is the drama, not beautiful phrases, nor comforting sentiments, nor vague aspirations to loving kindness and uplift, nor the promise of something nice after death, but the terrifying assertion that the same God who made the world lived in the world and passed through the grave and the gate of death. Show that to the heathen and they may not believe it, but at least they may realize that here is something that a man might be glad to believe. Ask today that the Lord set you on fire with his truth and that you would be like the flame that Abraham, or that Moses saw in the burning bush that they would see a person consumed or not consumed by fire but is on fire and lives according to what he believes. And that living will be the proof somebody else needs to see. And that is is that I know this person, I know who they were, and I know that they, they have committed themselves fully and completely to a truth that I don't know and don't have access to, but make it compelling, something they would want.